Um, I see a lot of new new faces, so it's that's always a good thing. Um, my name is Brandon. Uh, I am the college and young adults pastor. It's really good to have you here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I want to make sure to do that. So come and find me after the service. Uh, but we are going to be looking at a passage today that um, I think is a fairly polarizing passage. And in fact, uh, the Bible is often polarizing, and it contradicts even uh, the most devout Christians many times. And so, you know, a lot of times we have perceptions about who we're supposed to be until we have a passage in Scripture that we come across that we find ourselves and our lifestyles contradicting. And I think this is a passage that a lot of Christians, if they were being really honest, would say that they struggle with submitting to it and understanding. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to looking uh, at this passage more closely. But just to give you some background, especially for those of you who haven't been here with us, Romans so far has been uh, re- really very powerful. And it's taken us about a year and four months to get this far in Romans. So we've really taken our time uh, working through one of the most powerful books that we have in the New Testament. Okay, And um, this is why it's so powerful. Paul wrote this letter, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a church in Rome that was brand new to the faith. This is very early on uh, in the beginning of the church. And it's a church in a huge metropolitan city. It's very, very eclectic, very diverse in terms of its populace. And there is a, a, a small churches beginning to pop up throughout Rome. And in these churches contain both Jew and Gentile, those who were raised in the Jewish faith system and those who came from a completely different background who recognize that Jesus Christ is their salvation and they come to saving faith in him. Now, the, the importance of this letter, particularly this first part, chapters 1 through 8, is Paul takes the time to talk about what it means to know Jesus Christ as, as our Lord and Savior. And so he, he's addressing our personal faith, our individual faith. What does it mean to put our faith in Jesus Christ? And then what are the repercussions of that? Okay, what does that mean for our life? What does that mean in terms of access and benefit and blessing before the God that created the whole world? Okay? And then we transition to a portion of the, of the scripture that deals specifically with the Jewish people. Because there were so many Jews who were coming to know Jesus Christ, they had a lot of different types of questions uh, surrounding what was going to come of the Jews. What was going to come of the nation of Israel? Had God forgotten them? And Paul takes time to answer those questions in chapters 9 through 11. All right? And now we've just recently transitioned uh, into a section of Scripture where Paul is teaching the Christians what it means to live as a Christian. All right? He's teaching all these brand new believers, what does it mean day to day uh, to live like and have the character of someone who follows Jesus Christ with their life? And uh, in chapter 12, we've looked at, we looked at um, several different things. Okay, We looked at uh, what does it mean to live rightly in a world that seems to contradict our every purpose. And we can relate to that, can't we? We can relate to those struggles and those questions. In chapter 12, God teaches us what it means to live as the church and act as followers of Jesus Christ. It answers questions concerning what it means to have good character. What does the character of a Christian look like? How to engage and treat other people. Now in chapter 13, though, we begin by learning what it means to be Christians subject to higher authorities, specifically government officials. All right, now, this might be particularly boring subject matter initially. Just anytime you mention the word government, especially during tax season, <laughs> it's really easy to want to just shut off and say, okay, well, I don't know what the re- relevance of this is to my life, but let's, let's move through the passage and see what the principles and even the direct commands of this passage have for us. So for the sake of just creating a little bit further context, let me, let me talk to you about this. Rome was not an easy place to be a Christian during this time period. It was not an easy place to be subject to the authorities. Rome was a place of instability and insecurity for the Christian. And after this letter, in fact, just maybe 10 years later, we have one of, we have one of the greatest suppressions and persecutions of, of Christ, Christians ever in the history of the church. 
in Rome. And so they feel that unsettledness. A Jewish or a Gentile believer in Rome would feel the unrest and insecurity of being a believer in Rome. They would know that. Christians were perceived by Roman governors as troublemakers. A wild and dangerous variable in a large metropolitan city. You can imagine just this, this vast city and this, uh, an uprising beginning to take place. You can see how a, a governor or a, an official might perceive this new faith system rising up and honestly spreading like wildfire. And they had lots of questions and lots of fears. Leaders and rulers distrusted them, fearing that they might spark rebellion. All right? Now, Christianity, having been born out of the foundation of the Jewish faith, made the rulers even more insecure. Okay, by the time this letter was written, the Jews had already been exiled from Rome on three different occasions. Okay, Roman leaders had determined uh, in 159 BC, in 1980, and in 41 AD that the Jews were actually a problem for their government because of their proselytizing, because of how bold and audacious they were with the truth of the Bible, they, they posed a problem. They, they created a stir. They created a rebellion in Rome. And, and so on three different occasions, they were actually exiled and kicked out of uh, Rome proper. So Jerusalem had a history of causing unrest for rulers and kings for really for thousands of years. If you look at the whole of the Old Testament, anytime uh, a Gentile ruler is in command over Jewish people, Things are usually not very easy for them. Things don't always go the way that they anticipate. It's not easy to hold the Jewish people under your thumb when they're God's people, you know. So Christianity was seen as being equally untrustworthy and perhaps more dangerous because of how quickly it was spreading. Now think about it this way. The, Christian, the Christian's leader, Jesus Christ, right, had declared himself a king. And not just a king, all right, but a king of an unseen kingdom, all right, which was particularly strange. John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight? And this, is, this has great relevance for, this, for us this morning. Uh, that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. So this language didn't produce a lot of trust uh, among the authorities in Rome. So policies and persecutions were justified among these lost leaders. So this is our backdrop. And this is what leads Paul to write this portion uh, of the letter. Okay, this is, this is what gives this portion of Romans chapter 13 great relevance for us. So let's go ahead and begin by looking at it. Verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Let's stop here for just a second. Let's talk about those words. The word subject, first of all, means to be under the dominion or authority of another. Okay, to be under the dominion or the authority of another. Now, first of all, a Christian would have heard that and thought immediately, well, the one that I answer to is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is my authority. Jesus Christ is the one that I answer to and am, and am subject to. We see the phrase higher powers here. And higher powers really just means any authorities that are higher than yourself. Any authority that is higher than your position is a higher power. And so what's the command? It's a very straightforward command. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. This is reiterated in Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Put them in mind, Titus, remind them that they might be subject to the principalities and powers to obey magistrates to be ready to every good work. So this is something that Paul reiterates throughout his letters, that we as Christians should be subject to the higher powers that oversee us. See, this is not an easy thing for these young Roman Christians to hear, or really any Christian to hear. Even Christians today to hear. Political and social unrest so often stirs up oppressed people into rebellious spirit, or in some cases, even literal rebellion. Okay, so let's draw a parallel to, to our contemporary society. 
People are really stirred up. I don't know if you've noticed. People are particularly angry today about policy, about politicians. And we are, and really, let's talk specifically about Christians. Christians are convinced today that they're oppressed. They're convinced of it. Now let me say something to you. You do not know what oppression is. We have no idea what oppression is. We have no idea. And there's a real contradiction here because the, the, the state of the church is as lukewarm and as comfortable as it's ever been. And yet we're being as loud and, and as obnoxious politically as we could possibly be as though we are an oppressed people. And the truth is most Christians just spend most of their evenings sitting on the couch not investing anything of God's word in the life of any other person. That's just the truth. And yet we're so angry. And we see ourselves as oppressed. And so Paul is trying to help us understand something very important. And hopefully you guys get it by the, by the time we leave today. But, but political and social unrest so often stirs up people who are oppressed. And it, and it leads us to have a rebellious spirit. Now there's a, one other thing to address here. Is that Paul oftentimes talked about the fact that Christians we're not supposed to be of this world. Right? So to be subject to higher authorities seems a bit like a contradiction. Okay, so here's, here's my question for you. You can go to the next slide. I think the question's on, on this slide here. I don't know. If, maybe it's not. I don't know. Good luck, by the way. <laughs> uh, so Paul has devoted so much of his writings to declaring to us that we are not under the control of of the world, but under the control of God. So is this a contradiction? Is him saying, be subject to higher powers? Is this a contradiction? Okay, let's look at some of these passage, passages that, that Paul um, gives the, the church. Wherefore, if ye be dead in, uh, with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men? James 4.4 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You guys recognize this kind of language? 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, including Governmental powers, right? The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so the question becomes, does Paul's declaration of freedom and his declaration of separation from the world contradict his command, God's command, to be subject to earthly authorities? And the answer is, of course, no. No. Let me explain something. In light of Christian freedom and liberation from the world, Paul recognizes that there's all the more susceptibility to be rebellious to civil authority. Are you guys with me? He understands that there's more likelihood, knowing that we as Christians are pilgrims in a strange world, there's all the more likelihood that we would be susceptible to rebellious ways of thinking. And so God uses him here to draw us back into a mindset that that says... We are to be subject to the institutions that God establishes, that we might be obedient to him, and that we might more effectively work the gospel into a lost and dying world. That's what's happening here. Paul recognizes our susceptibility. But here's this is a very important thing to know. It is not our place as Christians to topple the world or its structures Okay? But to undermine Satan's grip on it by declaring the gospel. That's our job. You know, I had a conversation not too long ago with uh, Chris Miller, and it was like just a really insightful conversation about this idea. Anytime you have a conversation with Chris Miller, it's particularly insightful. Sometimes the insights he gives you are ones you definitely don't want, uh, but it is insightful always. No. But we, we had this good conversation, and he, he made the statement. Anytime um, a word uh, uh, precedes the word Christian, 
then that means that's, that's, trouble, that's troublesome, right? So I'm a conservative Christian, or I'm a, I'm a liberal Christian, or I'm a black Christian, or I'm a Hispanic Christian. Anytime a word, a qualifier, comes before the word Christian, right, that's troublesome. Then you and I had this conversation right after I talked with Chris about it, I think, Eric. You gave me a look like I didn't include you in the dialectic. <laughs> you and I, what, we've conversed about this before, too. You want some credit in that conversation? <laughs> he gave me the look. Eric has this look that he gives me. All right? It's very brotherly. Uh, but anytime there's a qualifier before the word Christian, then it undermines the actual identifier as being a Christ follower. We should never have to preface our Christianity with something else. And a lot of times in our society today, Christians like to qualify their Christianity by first stating their political position. And that's very troubling. Because it, what it really does is it, it harms the declaration of the gospel. Our primary objective is not to topple the world's structures or not to rebel against governmental entities. Our primary objective is to undermine Satan's grip by declaring the gospel. So here's our first key point. Key point number one. Subjection this is, a long, this is a little bit of a long one. So I'll give you a sec. All right. Subjection to earthly authorities. I wanted to make sure I said earthly. I wanted you to understand what exactly it is that we're talking about. Subjection to earthly authority frees the Christian from concern over physical circumstances in order to focus on the spiritual work. Subjection to earthly authority, okay? By, by God telling us here, by commanding us to obey and be subject to the authorities that he institutes, we're about to learn about that, it frees the Christian from having to be concerned about what their politicians are doing. We don't have to be imprisoned or in bondage to those thoughts. We don't have to get worked up. We don't, have to go, we don't have to watch CNN for hours on time or Fox News or whatever it is that we're into. We don't have to get obsessed with that. We can leave that to the Lord. Not that we're not responsible for voting or whatever, whatever privilege that God gives us to participate. That's great. We're not talking about that. We're talking about freedom from our physical circumstances, contentment. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Whatever state I'm in, I will be content. Whatever our physical circumstances are, we can be set free from them, knowing that God is in that work, so we can be set free to, to focus on the spiritual things that God's given us to do. Does this make sense to everyone? So this is why God asks us to be subject to our authorities. Look at the other part of verse 1. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. In other words, just as we saw earlier in Romans, some of you were here for it, some of you weren't. Earlier in Romans, we saw God use Pharaoh, didn't we? We saw God use Pharaoh that the nation of Israel might be set free. Right? He ordains that Pharaoh might rule over Egypt, that he might use him to set the people free, that he might use him to declare his name. All right? Now, it didn't come easy, but God did it, didn't he? God establishes all higher powers that they might be used to his ends and his purposes. All of them. But there is a hierarchy. Okay? There is a hierarchy. So now we must, we must understand, this is super important, something very clearly, there's a hierarchy of authorities that is established here in this passage. So God, as the ordainer of higher powers... It makes him and establishes him as the highest authority. In other words, because he ordains higher powers, governmental authorities, what he's doing is reminding us that he is the ordainer and he is the one that we must submit to first and foremost. So the world represents for us a system that often contradicts Christ, doesn't it? And so we must first live for Christ and refuse anything that comes in conflict with his authority. Okay, let me paint this picture for you. If at any point the government asks you to do anything that comes in conflict, or, or for any higher power for that matter, your boss, your teachers, your parents, anytime someone tells you or commands you to do something 
and it comes in conflict with your highest authority, then you refuse it outright. You obey God first. But at any level, this is what this passage is important for, at any level that, the, that any higher power asks you to submit and to be subject to them that doesn't come in conflict with God's word, then you're asked to do so. You're asked to do so. But yet we find ourselves within the world system under, under worldly authorities. And we are asked by God to submit and be subject to all sorts of authorities, bosses, uh, legislators, presidents, kings. And, and for some people, some people in the world, okay, let's, let's maybe get outside of the American context for a second. Um, all over the world are being oppressed by leaders, by rulers. And as, and as rulers who are, are ordained by God into those positions, the abuse of those powers, guess who they answer to? They don't answer to you, they answer to God. And so we, we need not fear wicked rulers. We need not fear wicked legislation. We need not fear wicked policies. To the end that our testimony would abound to the furtherance of his eternal kingdom and support, support the order of his will. Our responsibility is to support the order of his will. If he's ordained these authorities over us, then by submitting to them, we actually support the work of his kingdom. We'll talk about how to do that here in a moment. Verse 2, whosoever, now let's look at the authority and, and the resistance of authority. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, establish. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. All right? Does that make sense? And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. So this command comes with a warning. Not to the loss of our salvation. That's not what this is talking about. Damnation here is in reference to our physical life. You could lose your physical life if you refuse to obey the powers that God's put in place. To resist the earthly authorities is to put yourself at risk. Right? That's the warning to the Romans. If our governments and our rulers are ordained, are ordained by God, then it is our responsibility to submit and not resist that power. It's not our job uh, to set our government straight. It's not our job to instigate rebellion. It's not our place to answer the sword with the sword. And to do so is to put... Uh, is to risk death and even imprisonment, right? But most importantly, to rebel is to rob God of his true pur purpose, which is spiritual rebellion. You understand? So our main objective is not to rebel against, you know, in the, in the song we sang, I don't know the exact lyrics, but one of the songs we sang today is uh, uh, that that. Basically, that the earthly things are, are pale. They're just like, they're kind of a, a, a shallow, uh, I don't know the exact words. It's from the, the Gunger song that we sing. But the, just the, the things in this world, the, the earthly authorities, they're just a veil. They're just a, a, a vain shadow of a truer thing. And these earthly authorities just represent a, a, a much paler and weaker version of, of the true authority, which is the reigning Jesus Christ. And, and to get caught up in physical rebellion, and to get caught up in politics and politicking, and to get caught up in activism and protest against the government, is to neglect the work that you're actually called to do, which is spiritual rebellion. You are called to be a rebel, but a spiritual one. You know, Peter messed up. And his way of thinking about this. All, really, all of the early disciples of the 12, they didn't fully understand this truth. And, and in John chapter 18, verse 2, we find Jesus in the garden praying, and Judas has betrayed him. And the, the, the Roman soldiers are there with the, 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 the Pharisees and, and, and the uh, religious order to come and capture Jesus. Let's read this story real quick. And, and Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, 
cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. This is the way the world thinks, right? This is the way the governmental authorities work, right? They work with swords. And uh, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. So powerful. Spiritual authority there, right? We see God's spiritual authority. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be filled, which he spake uh, of them, which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall, shall I not drink it? Now we actually see Jesus actually heals this man here. But the important thing for us to understand here is that Peter was caught up in the physical. Peter was caught up in the political rebellion. Peter was caught up in the wrong thing. And oftentimes, as Americans, we have a privilege. We have the privilege of having an opinion. We have the, the privilege of a democratic system. We have the privilege of voting and having a say. But with that privilege, we've grown to be accustomed to the idea that we should have some level of control. And it distracts us from our true purpose. To resist the authorities that surround us is to be a defector in God's very, very big plan. Key point number two. Subjection to earthly authority allows his children to complement the order of God's will rather than contradict it. Subjection to earthly authority allows his children to complement the order of God's will. Just like in the situation with Peter. Peter could have submitted to the Lord knowing that there was a spiritual battle at work. That something bigger was happening behind the scenes. Something that he didn't fully understand. And he could have kept his sword sheathed. I mean, it's amazing that this man was willing to pull out his sword, but he denied Christ three times. This is the way we think. This is the way we think. We think that we're doing God a service many times by, by being rebellious in spirit towards our political authorities. But the truth is, if we were to, to be asked to speak out in Christ's name, many of us would refuse to do it. But we have a, an opinion about politics that seems to be somehow informed by our Christianity. What a contradiction, right? What a contradiction to God's true will. Here's an example for you. You know, many Christians engage in divisive and polarizing political and social battles on Facebook and Twitter. Many, many Christians do. Many of your family members, some of you in here, have fallen prey to divisive conversation, right? You know, it's not wrong to have a political opinion. But we should never do so at the risk of harming our testimony and muffling the ears of people who need the gospel of Christ. We should never, ever, ever find ourselves having conversations about peripheral issues that could in some way harm the moving of the gospel. Ever. You know, the testimony of many Christians in their workplace or at school is also an, an impediment to the gospel. You know, many of us gossip about our bosses, our teachers. We talk bad about them. As a teacher, I know that it happens about me. Maddie, you know it's true. You don't participate in that. You hear it when it happens. But we undermine their decisions. We undermine our leaders, our bosses, our higher powers. We undermine their decisions. We speak evil about them. You know what? It's only to our own spiritual ineffectiveness. To speak evil of our authorities is to declare to the lost that we don't respect authority in general. That's what we tell the lost people. When we, when we disrespect the, our authorities, our, in front of our coworkers, we talk bad about our boss or or someone that's further along in the job, or we talk bad about our instructors, all you're doing is communicating the idea that you don't know how to submit to authority in general. And why would that lost person ever want to hear your opinions about how you submit to your God? 
It's a hindrance. You know, after all, it was the Roman centurion's understanding of worldly authorities. Didn't he? Remember the story in Matthew chapter 8? The Roman centurion's understanding of worldly authorities. And it gave him the ability to submit to spiritual authority in his life. He makes that declaration right to Jesus' face. He says, you know what, Jesus? I am, I am a man under authority. I know exactly how authority works. And what a beautiful story. Like it just... It gets me just thinking about it. I mean, Jesus said, There's, I haven't come across any faith this big ever in my time here. And this man understood physical authority, which gave him insight into the spiritual authority of the Son of God. He says, you say it, and it will be, and I trust you for that. Wow, how powerful. And yet we come in contradiction to that all the time by undermining the authorities in our life. Key point number three, the divisive political and social opinions of haphazard stewards is only a hindrance to the veracity of the gospel. Our divisive opinions is, is uh, or the, the, the opinions of people who are not good stewards, people who, who fail to steward the truth that they have. We just talk willy-nilly uh, about our opinions that are completely, some things that are just completely subjective actually. And we talk about them as truth, and we undermine the authorities around us. These things become a hindrance to the power and the effectiveness of the gospel itself. You know, it's by our submission that we declare and put to silence the foolishness of the lost. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the, for the Lord's sake whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors or unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For, for listen, listen, verse 15. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to, to silence the ignorance of foolish men. It's by your submission to authorities that you silence those that are not submitted This is super important, and it's not a part of our testimony that we often think about, you know. This isn't something that we often consider or contemplate or even feel conviction about. We think that we have the right to talk trash on our president all day long, and we do it. And some of your opinions might be justified, but the question is, do you pray for the politicians that you so qu you're so quick to talk trash about? I'm like the most, like, a political individual that you might ever meet. I mean, I have a real disdain for it, right? I, I do my basic duty uh, when I can vote. Last time I tried to vote, I got to the polling place, and they told me that I wasn't actually registered, which was like a paperwork issue, because I registered when we first moved. And you know, I was like, oh, darn, okay. <laughs> That's too bad. And I'm not telling you that you shouldn't be involved at some level. I'm not even telling you that politics is bad. But what I'm telling you is that you must be subject to the authorities that God has ordained and put in place. That's what I'm asking you to do. And that's what the command is here. Verse uh, 3. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God, speaking of those authorities. He is the minister of God, to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Man, there's so much there. We don't have time to get into all that. Paul speaks here by telling us that rulers are not actually a terror. They're not really out to get us, even though it feels that way sometimes. Even though the Romans, the Christian Romans here, might have thought that way, they might have supposed that the government was out to get them. See, the brutal hand of Claudius and Nero would have been a testament against the good intentions of leadership during this time period. They would have thought to themselves, from what I see in the leadership, it actually looks like they are out to get us, Paul. Right? 
And this is a particularly hard concept to understand, but God establishes magistrates and civil rulers with the intent that they create a structure for law and order. It is their, it is their submission to their own constitutions that it establishes social order so that we can live day to day. It's the reason we have sidewalks and streets and roads, right? It's the reason we have public schools. Whatever your opinion is about them, it's the reason we have them. It's the reason that the, the most poor in our society are fed, right? It's the reason you have running water. It's the reason that decisions are made on a daily basis by the police department and the fire department. And my point is, is this. No matter what your society looks like and whatever structure you're facing, whether it's a dictatorship or it's a democracy, God is at work. And those officials that are in place, as vile and evil as they might be, are there to create a structure so that if you do good, you're going to go under the radar. And that if you do evil, your hand is going to get slapped. And you may go to prison. And in some cases, you might even have to pay with your life by not obeying. But the point is, is that the governance is put in place by God. Here's key point number four. Subjection to earthly authority protects us from earthly evils. But our rebellion invokes their wrath. And rightfully so. Don't stir things up. If you're going to stir things up, stir things up in the name of Christ. Not in the name of self. Okay? Now we'll get to that in a second. Because Paul certainly stirred things up. The dude was very familiar with uh, the judicial system of the Roman Empire. Right? He, came, he became very familiar with it. Um, but not to his own end, to Christ's end. Because Christ was his final authority. Subjection to earthly authority protects us from earthly evils. But our rebellion against earthly authorities invokes their wrath. And that's how it should be. That's what we want. We want people who commit crimes to go to jail. We want, we want people, we want there to be a sense of, ju of justice in our society. We want that. We need government. Civil government is one of three institutions that God has established. Marriage being one, okay? Government uh, being established first in Genesis chapter 9, okay? And that's, God declares there that someone that murders, that it's the responsibility of the community to respond with that by executing that person. That's his first suggestion in terms of governmental authority. All right? He establishes that. And then, and then he establishes the church. There's three institutions that God has established. And it is only for our good. And, it, and, and, it is, and here's the deal. The only people that should be afraid of government are the ones that are committing acts against it. That's what the passage says. Not for those that do good. Now here's the question. What about evil governments? And we'll end with this. Okay, what about evil governments? What do we do? See, so often we are convinced that our authorities, whether bosses or senators, or presidents are a terror against our lives, as though their primary work is to suppress us, okay? Maybe perhaps they, they restrict our personal freedoms, or in some cases, they legislate wickedness, which happens, doesn't it? Perhaps they oppress the weak, and perhaps they offend, offend the righteous that live in their country, or even in their work, workplace. Has anybody ever, maybe you can think of times where a boss at your job has oppressed you for your faith. It happens, doesn't it? It happens. So we ask ourselves, do we protest and rebel? What should we do? Buy all the guns? <laughs> That's not a crazy thought, is it? That's what lots of people are doing. They're buying all the guns. Now, here, here, here's the deal. We, can, we don't have time to unpackage every hypothetical governmental situation. We don't have time to do that. But I do want to point to the saints of old and see how they handled the government. Okay? Let's first talk about David. King David. You know, he was an anointed king, but spent over a decade running from King Saul. He would, the throne was justifiably his. And yet, when everyone around him was suggest, suggesting on two occasions, 
He had the opportunity to take Saul's life, and he didn't do it. You know why? Because he was a man under authority. And because he, he understood the principle of Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine. That is God's responsibility to enact vengeance. And in, 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 in so doing, David set into course a trial in his life that no, I mean, he should never have had to endure it. But it only worked to his good. And it only worked to the furtherance of the kingdom that would be established. But David, even, even though King Saul was wicked and oppressed him, he knew that King Saul was appointed king. And he submitted to that. Consider Daniel. Daniel's submission to his authorities. Nebuchadnezzar's legislation conflicted with God's authority in Daniel's life, didn't it? So who did he obey first? God. He obeyed God. And so he continued to pray to his God and open, was unafraid. Unafraid of the consequences. But yet we also see Daniel's willingness to face death without ever contesting the fairness of Nebuchadnezzar. You never once see Daniel speak evil of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he treated him as a friend. And that's why it hurt Nebuchadnezzar so much when Daniel was put into the lion's den. I mean, it hurt Nebuchadnezzar's heart that he had to do that. You know what I'm talking about? We're talking about submitting to the Lord first and then submitting to the authorities in our life. Now, what about Paul and Nero? What about Paul's testimony? No one was ever, was ever any more wicked a ruler as Nero. And yet Paul's example is absolutely being subjected to him. Nero oppressed Paul's work, and yet Paul chose to obey God first. Nero oppressed Paul, and yet Paul strove to obey all the laws that had been given to him. He sought to not contra contradict his divine efforts by obeying Nero's rules, right? He found a balance. He found a place of moderation where he obeyed God first, and then he obeyed Nero. Nero oppressed Paul, and yet Paul did not complain of unfair... You know how many times in these letters Paul had an opportunity to, to just expound on how unfair it was that they were being persecuted? You don't ever, ever hear anything like that. Ever. Not once. No protest from Paul's mouth. He didn't complain of unfair politics, but rather faced death. Listen, faced death as if it were God's will running its natural course in his life. These saints and many more stand as a testament to how God would have us to live in submission to his authority as well as, his earth, as, as, well as earthly authorities. And if vengeance and justice needs to be executed, God is more than capable of doing so. Romans 12, 17, the passage that, that Lon wrote. Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. That's the principle at work here, isn't it? As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. But you know, there's a problem in Christianity today. That no one wants to do the spiritual work. No one wants to do the spiritual work. No one wants to proclaim the gospel. And yet they're very, very hard at work declaring their own righteousness. And in so doing, they're not living peaceably. Like what I would like the ideal situation is to obey the Lord and obey your government and work without anyone ever paying any attention to you or ever knowing your name or knowing anything about you as thousands be saved. And that's the most ideal situation possible. That you would affect the entire planet without anyone ever knowing who you are. And I don't know, maybe for some of you this feels really far away. Maybe this isn't you. Maybe, maybe you don't think about politics. Maybe you're like me, you don't think about politics that much. You know, there was a lot of truth that came out of this, principles about following our authorities and submitting to authorities that was really good to me. Let's real quick talk about supporting our authority. Verse 6. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers. And this is how you treat God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing, you render, therefore, to all their dues. That's how you treat authorities. You render to them their dues. 
Whatever is due them, you give it to them. That's how we live. That's how we treat our bosses. Really, that's how we treat our pastors. That's how we should be treating our pastors. We should be giving to Sam what's due to him. That's what's fair. That's what's peaceable. That's what's righteous. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom is due. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. So here's key point five. Subjection to earthly authority means supporting them financially and observationally. Subjection to earthly authority means supporting them financially and observationally. And so specifically with our governmental authorities, um, you need to pay taxes. You need to pay taxes. This is a way of submitting to authorities and helping make their protections and provisions possible and easier. You're actually contributing to your own well-being when you pay taxes. Now, you might have opinions about taxes. Oh, there's too many taxes, right? You might be a libertarian. You might be a hardcore Republican. And, you, you, and that's cool. That's fine. Yeah. Okay? But my point to you is this. There are taxes, and we're called to pay them. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom is due. And I'm not going to look at that. There's a passage, obviously, we know. Sorry, if you guys, we have to hurry. Gabe, next slide. There you go. You know, Jesus talks about the whole giving tribute to him, tribute to him. He talks about that. I don't know if you're familiar with that passage. Give to Caesar what belongs to him. Who's on, who's on this penny? Oh, it's Caesar's face. We'll give it to him. Who cares? Who cares? Render to whom, uh, render, uh, therefore, uh, to all their dues, right? Custom to whom custom. That's like levies and tolls and regulations that we encounter on a daily basis. We pay that stuff. We do that stuff. We live that stuff. Day to day. Every day. We render that to them. Fear to whom fear. So now we've moved from financial to observational. God's ordination of authorities should establish a godly fear in us. Our reverence for our leaders is a reflection of our, uh, of, of our reverence for God's sovereign hand. Right? When we reverence our leaders and we respect them and treat them respectfully, it's a reflection of of our reverence for God's sovereign hand who allowed that person to be in that position. Honor to whom honor. God's ordination of authority should lead us to treat them with dignity. Our value of our leaders is a reflection of our appraisal of God's glory. If we value them and we treat them with the value that's due to them, then that only shows the Lord that we value him and, and glory in him. Okay, so in conclusion, guys. All right, this is a weird one to conclude, okay? Uh, for many Christians today, we struggle with many of the same views as the early Roman Christians would have. There is a rebellious spirit in our society and within the heart of Christianity, actually, and not for the right reasons. We have grown comfortable and lukewarm, and yet we perceive ourselves as the oppressed. Many Christians live as though we are, we are backed into a corner even though Christ has set us free. We think we've got our hands tied. You know, let me explain something to you. And, I'll, and this is on the recording. I don't, I don't even care. <laughs> no one at my, I'm, a, I'm a school teacher. I teach high school. No one is ever going to tell me to stop preaching the gospel. Fire me. Fire me. I'll go get another job. That's one thing I will I, like. I, I I answer to God in heaven, who gave my principal and my superintendent their jobs. That's the one I serve, and He has asked me to preach the gospel. That's His command. I'll do that wherever I go. Fire me. Okay. Now listen though. Because that's true, I have to make sure I'm subject in almost every other way to a T. I want to be the best employee that I can be. I want to be the hardest worker. See, I want to do that so that I can get away with my spiritual rebellion. <laughs> That's what I want to do. Perhaps your inability to submit has manifested itself in your workplace. Some of y'all have a tendency to get fired because you struggle to submit to leadership. I mean, some of you in this room have been fired multiple times from jobs. And that's probably because you have a submission issue. 
And principally, this message is powerful for you. Something should change in you. Perhaps your inability to be subject has manifested itself here at church. Your inability to submit to pastors or the discipler that's, that's taking you through the word of God and teaching you God's word. And you're having a hard time taking their counsel and receiving it. And in fact, you're kicking against the truth or, the, or their authority. And you're fighting against what God's trying to teach you through them. And some of you, some of you are in rebellion because you can't turn things in on time to D2 or LFBI. You're in absolute rebellion. And you might be able to make an excuse for that, but I'm telling you right now, it's wicked. If your pastor and your instructor gives you a syllabus and says, this is when the due date is, you're in rebellion whenever the work does not get turned in on time. And you're abusing their good nature, and it's unfair. Uh-oh. Perhaps your inability to be subject to higher authorities results in contention with your parents. And you find yourself arguing with your parents. Now listen to me right now. Until you're married, the Bible says you have to obey everything that they have to tell you. And some of y'all need to work out whether or not you believe that Jesus Christ is going to make a way for you to serve him and live the life that he's given you to live and yet still submit. I mean, there's some great testimonies in this room of people who chose to submit to their parents and prayed through it, and there was a season of trial, and on the other side, God gave them exactly what they wanted, even though their parents were originally in conflict with it. But some of y'all just want to argue with your parents all the time, and that's going to get you nowhere. In fact, all you're doing is breeding in yourself a heart of contention and a heart and an inability to submit to the other authorities in your life, including God, including God. If you can't even submit to your earthly father, do you think you can submit to a father in heaven that you can't see? No. You're going to fail at that. You're going to struggle with that. This is a crucial subject. This would be an easy passage for us to gloss over and just say, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to obey the laws. But there's so much to be taught here. And we need to trust the Lord that we can be people under subjection to higher authorities. Can we trust the Lord for that? If any of the things that I said here in the conclusion are you, struggle with parents, struggles with jobs, struggle with submitting to your spiritual authorities that God has put in your, in your life, and you need to get right with that and right now and pray to the Lord and ask for his help and his forgiveness that you might move forward the right way. I'm going to invite the praise team to come up, and we're going to pray. Okay? Hopefully the Lord showed us something today. And, uh...